0: Okay, Uh, Elise Fitzpatrick, some of you know who she is. She's a pretty popular author now and writer and speaker and Christian counselor. She teamed up with a guy named Dennis Johnson, who's a seminary professor and a homiletics teacher and a theologian, and they put a book together. They wrote a book together called Counsel from the Cross, um, Connecting Broken People to the Love of Christ. They saw the need to uh, recover the primacy of the gospel in counseling what the Puritans would call the cure of the soul. Um, they saw, they articulate it, they give a plan for it. Uh, well, in the book, they mention a case study of a guy named Jack. Jack went to college, then to seminary, met his future wife at seminary, got married, graduated from seminary, landed a full-time ministry job as a pastor and served for years in the pastorate and As he served years in the pastor, as time marched on in the ministry, he grew more and more discouraged and more and more disappointed. Uh, Now, Jack understood deep truth, and you know what I mean by deep truth. That's code for he was reformed, right? He understood deep truth. He he understood the Bible and the grand sweep of the narrative framework. He understood the pieces and the parts of the whole. He understood his theology and could articulate it from front to back, From inside to out and from up to down. He could do it all. He could articulate justification and progressive sanctification. Uh, He labored to become more loving and patient. He labored to better fulfill the law. He labored to have a dynamic relationship with God. He labored to lead the church and to equip the saints for ministry. But his anger was still there. His anxiety was still there. And a growing sense of worthlessness and being a failure was still there. Some time ago, during a particularly stressful season, circumstances in the church escalated to the point where he was unable to keep control of everything anymore. The church was the demand, the work, the needs, the problems, the issues were just too much, too intense, too all over. He couldn't manage it and control it anymore. And then out of nowhere in the midst of this, it seemed to him that his low-grade anxiety turned into a full-blown fever. He was overwhelmed by feelings of condemnation and worthlessness and confusion. His hands started shaking. He had no energy to preach. Here's the question. What happened to Jack? Answer, Jesus is about ready to tell us. And it's not as complicated and mysterious as you might think. In fact, what happened to Jack, according to Jesus, is as common as the winter cold. So what we are about to do is we are about to see a passage Where Jesus gives us the base or the bottom of all our life choices. Why do we do what we do? He's about ready to tell us. Why do I feel so deeply the things I feel? He's about ready to give you the base and the bottom of them all. Are you excited? Man, I am. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Matthew chapter 6:19 through 24. Many of you that have been in the church have heard this so many times you don't know what it means. <laughs> so try to hear it again, afresh. No one can, no one's able to serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we acknowledge very clearly, two things. One, that the riches that are found in your word are unfathomable uh, beyond uh, no bottom and beyond reach unless you give them to us. Unless you open our eyes and make them clear to us. And unless you make them real to our hearts. And so, oh, Holy Spirit, would you demonstrate that kind of power? we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is our final look at money in the gospel. So you can tell your missing church friends it's safe to come back to church next week, okay? I see some people that are not here. Names will not be mentioned. Bring them next week. Tell them it's over. This is our last look at money in the gospel, and it's going to be a little different than what we've done in the the first three. You might recall that we started with the Old Testament, and we started with that Italian prophet that I'm now stuck saying his name. His name is Malachi, not Malachi, just for future reference. Uh, But he talked about the power of money, and he talked about how money can become our temple. And what's fascinating about money is, And a temple is you always give to your temple. Easily. No one has to twist your arm. And so if you want to follow what your temple is, follow the money trail. You will always find your temple at the end of your money. It's wherever our money goes. That's our temple. Okay? Um, Then we went to Paul, and Paul highlighted... Not the power of money, but the purpose of money. And he highlighted the fact that money was a gift given from God to primarily bless others. It's not a source of personal trust to overspend on ourselves. That was his point. So he looked at the purpose of money. Malachi, the power of money. Jesus, last week, the, let me look at my notes, (laughs) the point of money. It's okay, Nisha, you can laugh. The point of money. And what's the point of money? The issue with money and with giving, it's all about worship, not amount. And that's what we looked at that poor widow, remember? Well, today we're going to take a step back from money and consider the person behind the money. The person who handles money. The person that uses and relates to money. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to co-opt a phrase from some political hack group I, I know of. I'm not saying they're a hack group. I'm just saying that it's a phrase from that part of the world. All right, the co-opt the phrase is this, money doesn't kill people, people kill people. That's the co-opt phrase. In other words, we could say it this way, romance doesn't kill people, people kill romance. <laughs> All right, Facebook doesn't kill people, people kill Facebook. Um, So we could say, in other words, money doesn't beg or ask or plead to be our temple, to be our worship, to be our significance, to be our security and to be our happiness. Money doesn't plead to be that for us. We do. Money isn't stingy. Money isn't grouchy. Money isn't controlling Money isn't um, anxious. Money isn't inherently worrisome. We are. We do. Right? Okay. So today Jesus is going to give us an x-ray, better yet an MRI of the human soul. And he's going to show us why we do what we do. What's at the bottom of all our life choices? He's going to show us why we feel deeply what we feel deeply about. He's going to give us the bottom or the base of all our emotional structure. He's going to tell us why money can become more than money to us. And it's not because money does it. We do it. Okay? Are you ready? Here's how the text works. It's really simple to see. The structure is very, very easy. There are two treasures, two eyes, two masters, all picturing, all pointing to the same thing. So Jesus' point is being illustrated in two treasures and two kinds of eyes and two kinds of masters. And the point is this, embrace the inescapability of your dependency. What Jesus is doing is he's marshalling all these common pictures in the ancient Near Eastern world and in our world. And he's marshalling them together to put forward one point. And he's going to say, embrace this. Embrace the inescapability of your dependency. Because that is the gravitational pull. That is the current of the cosmos. And if you don't embrace it and you try to go against the gravity of the cosmos, it will destroy you. You can't do it. So we have to have a treasure, he says, in the first picture. The second picture, he says, look, you have to see the world. You have to interpret the world. You have to try to make sense of the world. You have to. You have to spin off belief systems about your life and the world. It's inescapably so you have to do that. And you have to serve a master. You have to. The issue with these three pictures is not the action of laying up treasures, not the action of spinning off beliefs and making sense of your world, not the action of serving a master. Jesus is not saying, stop laying up treasures. Stop interpreting your world. Stop serving your masters. He's saying, don't lay up treasures there. Lay them up over here. Don't look at your world this way. Look at your world this way. Don't serve this master. Serve this magnificent one. Okay? One cultural critic, well, we could say, why? Why is this the case? Why? Because of the inescapability of dependency. We are made of the stuff of dependency the immaterial blood and the f- the immaterial person which is the soul the material person which is the body and the brain the blood that runs through those veins is a dna of dependency one cultural critic put it this way man must have a god to not lay up treasures To not interpret your world, to not serve a master, is to stop being human. So embrace the inescapability of your dependency, Jesus is saying. Now this means two things according to this passage. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time on. Here's what it means, number one. Embrace your heart being wed to your treasure. Verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. This means whatever is the functional, real-time source of our significance. Notice I'm saying functional, real-time source of our significance, of our security, of our salvation, of our happiness. Whatever that is, it has Your heart. It has your heart's deepest hopes. It has your heart's deepest trusts. It has your heart's deepest joys. It has your heart's deepest worship. It has your heart's deepest devotion. It has your heart's deepest rest and your heart's deepest reliance and your heart's deepest rejoicing and your heart's deepest sense of righteousness. So true Christian growth and true maturity in the Christian life is measured at our treasure, not our thinking. So this is a little difficult for folks like us because we like to think. We love to think. And please hear me, thinking is good. (laughs) Right? But true, real, genuine Christian growth and maturity is found and measured by what you treasure, not how you think. So we can have the book of Romans memorized and we can have a PhD in the Westminster Confession of Faith and in Reform Orthodoxy and the Book of Church Order and Robert's Rules. And we can still have the need to be right as our treasure, not God. We can still have people's approval as our treasure, not God. We can still have a love relationship as our treasure, not God. We can still have money as our treasure and not God. Alright, so let's, let's rewind and let's, in light of what we just learned... What happened to Pastor Jack? I mean, was it all just a complicated mess? Was it all just a psychological mystery? What really happened to him? Well, Elise Fitzpatrick says it this way: Jack thought his depression was telling him he was a loser, when actually it was telling him he had set his heart on a faulty treasure. Wow. So Jack's painful anger, his painful anxiety, his painful sense of worthlessness, his overwhelming sense of failure and his confusion and his despondency, it was all smoke. You could go home today and grab, you know, make yourself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and go over to your clicker and get all excited and click and wait for the game to come on and No game, because football's almost over, and I know the ladies are extremely happy, right? There's one more game. So you're a little, you're pouting about it, but while you're sitting there eating your sandwich, trying to find some other sporting event, you smell something, and you see smoke, and you smell smoke. Now, you could do this. You could go over to the window, and on the windows in the house, and bring in some fans, and get the fans to try to blow it around, but eventually... Eventually, it's going to fill the house. Eventually, it's going to start suffocating you. Eventually, it might just take you down. You see, what happened in Pastor Jack's life was smoke. And it was time for him to say, where's the fire? Where is my faulty treasure? For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Look at verse 19. Moss, mos, which represents natural calamities, right? Painful, stressful circumstances. Moss. Uh, Rust, which represents the wearing of time. Thieves, which represents the threatening actions of people. These things were threatening Jack's treasure. And because they were threatening Jack's treasure, they were tearing his heart to pieces. So what was Jack's faulty treasure? Well, since Elise Fitzpatrick was his counselor, I'll let her tell you. But I'm going to give some editorial comments in the midst of it. Here's what she says. Pastor Jack was locked in the grip of both the desire to approve of himself and the desire that others would approve of him. Now, when circumstances in his church escalated to the point that he was unable to keep everything under control. In other words, he was no longer to keep control of the demands, the the issues, the everything that's going on. He couldn't no longer do it. So he could no longer keep control of his Approval is self-approval. He could no longer keep control of the approval of others. It was out of control when that happened. And he couldn't suppress his feelings of self-loathing and worthlessness. So everything's out of control. And meanwhile, he can't suppress his feelings of worthlessness and being a failure. Why? Because he's not meeting the standards of self-approval. He's not meeting the standards of other people's approval. So he's feeling unworthy, worthless, right? Because of that, he fell into depression, confusion, and hopelessness. So what I'm about to say may sound crazy, especially to those who really feel it. So those of you that don't feel this way, you don't understand. But those of us that do and have and will, this might sound crazy to you. Painful emotions are a gift from God. they are the smoke that forces you to look for the fire and it forces you to find the faulty treasure that's killing you. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So embrace the inescapability of dependency. All right? We just looked at first implication. Here's the second and the last one. This means embrace not being in control of your life. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Notice that we are never the master here. Jesus doesn't give us the option of being a master. He only gives us the option of serving one. We're never the master in this verse. We're always the servant. The master controls our lives. The master's what we're devoted to. The master's what we love. The master's what we serve. The master's what we must have in order for life to have meaning and value, and I can be okay in the world. It's what we must have to avoid disaster and ruin and destruction in our life a personal death. No one starts out saying, I want to be controlled by money. (laughs) Right? No one does that. Here's how we start out. I want security. Money, can you give me security? No one starts out and says, You know what? I want to be controlled by Jethro's approval. No, we start out by saying, If I have Jethro's approval, I'll be accepted and loved, I'll be okay. No one starts out wanting to be controlled by internet pornography, um, a career, a body image, ice cream, right? But it happens. It happens because these things become our treasure and we have to serve a master. It happens because they take God's place. Now, there's another angle to this implication of embracing not being in control of your life. Did y'all catch it? And it goes to this. It goes like this. But why would I ever want God to control my life? (laughs) You see that angle here? Okay. Who says God's better than romance? Who says God's better than internet pornography? Who says this? I think, you know, I think the other things are actually more fun. Who says God Why would I ever want God to be in control of my life instead of my accomplishments and my achievement, instead of my career, instead of the things that really make me happy, instead of the things that give me a real sense of value and worth? That's a fair question. And you know what? Jesus probably got that question in his sermon here. Here's the first quick answer, because none of those things are God. (laughs) God. Because none of those things can give you what you were made for, can meet the deepest stuff of your dependency. You were made to be dependent on God. And these things can't carry the weight, the glory, the beauty, the wonder, the pleasure of Godhood. I can't do it second quick answer because they are all horrible masters I mean let's not kid ourselves the choice here is between a magnificent master and a slave master that's the choice Um, if money controls our life let's say like an unexpected expense happens Well, what happens to you? You get that pit in your stomach. You might not see it at first, but you get that little acid reflux. Right? Just a slight jump in the blood pressure. Uh, And then it turns into anger. And then the anger turns and looks for someone to blame. And if you're married, you know who that is. Right? Right? If money controls our life, in other words, if money now determines our view of interpreting the world and how we handle money, so now we're at the eye metaphor, how we handle money, how we see money, if money controls our life, our view of money, our eye towards money, we think it's the right view. It's the right view in the marriage. It's the right view in the home. It's the right view at church. It's the right view at your job. It's the right view in the community. Of course, it's the right view. And anyone else's view is inferior to your view. And of course, this doesn't create any sort of conflict whatsoever in any of those areas. If money controls our life, will it make us better people? Will it make us more loving and patient? Will it make us more sacrificing and servant? Will it make us less self-absorbed? The answer is no. No because they're horrible masters. These things can be great gifts, because that's what they're meant to be, good gifts, but they are horrible masters. Moth, rust, thieves destroy money, and romance, and friendships, and careers, and achievements, and talents. And if your heart is wed to it, you Okay, embrace the inescapability of your dependency. Um, Biblical theologian and ethicist, Stanley Harawas, he wrote this, um, possessed by possessions. That's a really cool phrase. In other words, he's, he's getting at the heart of what we're talking about here. When you come to realize that you're possessed by your possessions, I mean, what happens when you realize, oh my, I have a faulty treasure. My heart is wed to a faulty treasure. I have bad eyes. I am serving a horrible master. What do I do? Do you notice that Jesus doesn't tell you what to do here? (laughs) He tells you to lay up treasures over here, not over there. Well, the, the, the quick thing we're all asking is, well, how do you do that, Jesus? He keeps going. You know, have good eyes, not bad eyes. Okay, okay, okay. How do you do that, Jesus? He keeps going. No one can serve two masters. You're going to serve this one or that one. Love this one and hate that one. Okay, okay. How do I do that? He keeps going. He's a great preacher. He's keeping you in suspense. The answer doesn't come till later in his sermon. But now let's get prepped for it. You ready? Possessed by possessions, we discover that we cannot will our way free of our possessions. In other words, what he's saying is when you come to that realization that you are possessed by your possessions or possessed by romance or possessed by internet pornography or possessed by whatever, your career, possessed by ice cream, whatever it is. When you come to realize that, he says you begin to realize you can't dispossess yourself of it. So how in the world do you get free of it? Watch what he says. But if we can be freed, our attention may be grasped by that which is so true, so beautiful, we discover we've been dispossessed of it. To seek first the righteousness of the kingdom of God is to discover that for which we seek is given not achieved in other words translated here you got to translate some of these guys the only way out the only way out is to recognize a salvation that's given by grace you'll be stuck in merit and earning and performance. The answer comes in Jesus' sermon, so let's get to it. It goes like this. Here's the answer. Here's the more powerful beauty. Here's the more true truth. Here's the more bountiful fullness. Here's the more breathtaking you put a word in. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness some of you i gotta i gotta kill it right now because you're immediately running to your you see seek first the kingdom of god and and his righteousness you're thinking your righteousness of getting better and better you're thinking of moral ethical seek first moral ethical realities of righteousness and i want you to see know his righteousness Jesus is telling us, seek first his kingdom and his, his righteousness, not your own. In other words, only the better kingdom, the kingdom of God that comes by grace, not a kingdom that comes by your efforts to secure your significance. Your happiness, your security, your sense of control, your sense of power, of trying to go against the inescapability of dependency. Only that better kingdom, and only the most precious commodity in the cosmos, which is His righteousness for those who don't have any, which is His righteousness sealing you, His righteousness covering you his righteousness justifying you who are not righteous that this alone will cause you to lay up treasures these kind of treasures instead of those kind of treasures instead of seeking to generate your own salvation your own happiness your own meaning your own pleasure your own value your own worth your own security you'll go for his And you'll lay treasures up over here. Instead of being these things becoming your master, he becomes your master. Instead of seeing the world and interpreting the world through these kind of bad eyes, you'll have good eyes that give you light and life. Real stuff. So this move takes place, the only way we can embrace the inescapability of our dependency, the only way to lay up treasures that actually fill you and are fit for you. The only way to possess heavenly, um, healthy eyes, lenses, to interpret and see the world, the only way to serve the true master and not horrible masters. Here's the key. You will do this when you realize That you are his treasure. Then you'll lay up everything for that. When you realize that he treasured you by doing and dying and rising and taking your place. When that kind of treasuring gets in, you lay up, you have good eyes, you serve that magnificent master.